In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we are going to be talking about Roy Croft pack frames in bushcraft. How often to sharpen a knife, the jacket I'm wearing in episode 27, yes, it's a kit question, um, oiling knives and moisture content of wood for bow drilling. Welcome, welcome to episode 71 of Ask Paul Kirtley, where I answer your questions on wilderness bushcraft, survival skills, and outdoor life in general. And if you want to submit a question to Ask Paul Kirtley, there are some very easy ways to do that. You can just tweet me at pkirt, P-K-I-R-T, with the hashtag Ask Paul Kirtley. You can post an Instagram post. Post your own post. Don't reply to one of my posts. Post your own post with a photo and your question, again, using the hashtag AskPaulKirtley. And then when I search on that hashtag, I'll find your question. The other way, of course, is just using the contact form on my website at paulkirtley.co.uk. And then, of course, you can use the SpeakPipe facility as well, where you can leave me a voice message on my website at paulkirtley.co.uk as well. And I will then get an email with that voice message and I can include it in the show. Those are the four ways of asking me a question that are going to get my attention. Of course, you can take a small piece of paper and write your question on it in pencil and attach it to a carrier pigeon, but I might not see it. So your choice as to how you do it, the four ways that I'm going to see are the ones that I describe. And remember to spell my name correctly in the hashtag AskPaulKirtley. If you don't spell my name correctly, I'm not going to find it. All right, <laughs> let's have a look at the questions for this episode. And by the way, if you're wondering where I am, this is our little instructor's camp that we've had uh, for the last three days that we've been running a navigation course. Um, we came here um, before the weekend, we set up, we ran a, a two-night, two-day program with uh, students on the Navigation 101 course, which was very successful. And then I'm here today um, just enjoying being in the woods. But I thought while, I'll, while I'm here, I will answer some of your questions um, for episode 71. So, yes, I'm back in the UK and um, still down in the south of England, not anywhere particularly exotic today, although I guess it's exotic for some of you, depending on where you are in the world. Um, but yes, let's get on with the questions. This is a question via Instagram. So this is a good example of how to ask a question on Instagram. And this is from Sean Page. And he has a nice photo there of a, um, of a homemade pack and of the Roycroft design. And he asks, hi, Paul, what are your thoughts on the use of the Roycroft pack frame? Is it viable for everyday bushcraft use or should it be considered for emergency conditions only? Thank you for all the high quality bushcraft content you produce. Thanks, Sean. 
Well, you're very welcome, Sean. Um, I just do my best to help people out and um, share what I know so that that can benefit other people. I'm glad you appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you being interested in my material and I appreciate you asking a good question. So um, it's a it's a classic um, improvised pack frame that you're asking about and yeah, it, it's definitely part of bushcraft. It is definitely a relatively straightforward bushcraft project um, to make that uh, frame. Um, it's a good way of practicing some lashings and it is a good way, particularly if you've got a tarp or a blanket of gathering all of your belongings that you might have with you under those circumstances, whatever those circumstances are, and we can talk about that in a minute, and putting them in there, wrapping them up, attaching them to the back of that frame and carrying them on your back in uh, with some form of structure and it works very well. Um, is it the most comfortable way of carrying a load in the world? Um, not always. It's not so bad if the load's not particularly heavy. Um, if it's a very heavy load, of course, then um, like a rucksack with no waist belt, all the weight is going to be on your shoulders, which is then putting a lot of weight through your musculature rather than into your skeletal structure. Whereas if you're using a, a modern rucksack or even a relatively old rucksack with a waist belt, that hip belt is going to transfer a lot of the weight onto your hips and relieve all of that going through the musculature of your shoulders and and your back so weight it is somewhat weight dependent in terms of whether or not you want you know whether or not you want to use that out of choice um also there isn't a lot of padding on the back of it and there again that comes down to, a lot of that comes down to weight um and depending on what strapping you use you've used some rope there by the looks of it but you know i've seen some people use webbing tape and lamp wick and all sorts of things and depending on how narrow that is it might cut into your shoulders a bit more and again that is going to affect the comfort of course you can do things like put socks on your shoulders inside your jacket to try and um, pad um, but that all starts becoming a, a little bit of a faff but again you know in some situations that might be all you've got so i i think if you've got limited kit you know you might have a blanket you might have a pot and a few of the bits and pieces that you want to roll up into a blanket and put on your back and carry like a haversack. I think it's a very practical, minimalist way of taking your gear. Would I want to use it for a full-on backpacking trip um, when I've got the option of a modern backpack? No, I don't think I would because it would be, it would be uncomfortable. Um, but then going back to that, the more you would use it, the more you'd get used to it. So um you know it's like anything conditioning you can you can bear a lot of things if you get used to them um so to answer your question about does it have place in bushcraft yes absolutely you know taking those materials and making the frame is very much what i consider to be bushcraft you're you're taking materials from the bush and you're crafting them into something that's useful to you um would I be using it for everyday backpacking if I was doing a multi-day journey? Probably not, unless I made the choice of going very minimalist and if I wanted to go in a particular style, um, taking a woolen blanket, a billy pot and a few of the bits and pieces where I was sleeping in front of a fire and I was going in a very um, old time, minimalistic kind of frontiersman sort of way. If I wanted to choose to do that, then yes, it fits very nicely into that ethos. 
Um, so it's about what you want to achieve. And then of course, if you do have a, a situation where you need to move gear, um, you know, think of a scenario, um, you're washed up on a beach somewhere and you have a few belongings left. And th this is a survival scenario that I remember reading in a Royal Marines training book years ago. Um, they were given this scenario, officer selection, and you know, what would you do in this situation? And if you had a few bits and pieces um, with you and you needed to carry them and you had a, an old fertilizer bag or a bit of a tarp or a bit of a blanket or something that you could wrap things up in, then it's a good thing to know how to do. Um, and it's a good thing to have in your repertoire for uh, eventualities where you may need to carry gear and you don't have a day pack or a rucksack and you don't want to just try and stuff things in pockets or carry it over your shoulder somehow in a makeshift way. It's a more structured way and it's definitely better than a lot of the improvised methods that you might otherwise come up with if you didn't know it. So yeah, I think it has its place. I definitely think it's worth having a play with and practicing and knowing how to do it. Go out for a hike with it, see how comfortable you find it for different weights and then you get an understanding of where your comfort zone is. Um, so that's, that's my thinking on it. Be interested to know what other people's thoughts are. You can leave a comment under the video, either on my YouTube channel where you'll find this if you're watching it on YouTube or on my blog at paulcurtley.co.uk. You can leave a comment in the comments section below episode 71 and you can find that just by going paulcurtley.co.uk forward slash askpaulcurtley71 and you'll find that page and you can leave a comment there. So if you're listening on an audio file, audio only podcast somewhere, and you want to leave a comment, you can go to either my YouTube channel, um, which is youtube.com forward slash Paul Kirtley, or my blog and leave a comment there. Be interested to know your thoughts, but thank you for the question, Sean. Cheers. What's the next one? If I can get to it, let's see. How often to sharpen a knife? Here's a good example of how to ask a question on Twitter. From Shane Davis, and he asks, how often should you sharpen your knife? And what's the best way to tell if it's sharp? Um, first question, uh, so there's two questions really there, aren't there? First question is, how often? How often do you use it? How much are you using it on a day-to-day -day basis? And I know that sounds like I'm being a bit facetious, but that's really the answer to the question. It varies. Um, sometimes I'll be sharpening my knife twice a day. Other, day. other times I'll be sharpening it once a day. Other times I'll be sharpening it once a week. It depends on how much I'm using it, how heavily it's getting used. Um, am I doing lots of carving? Am I um, batoning and therefore maybe flattening the edge a bit? Um, what am I? What what hardness of wood am I working? Is it a particularly soft wood that I'm carving and working with, or is it a particularly tough species of wood that I've been working with? Um, so it, it really is dependent upon use and and the weight of use. So that brings us on to the second question, which is how do you tell if it's sharp? Because that's really the indication as to whether or not you need to sharpen it. 
um, is whether or not it's it's becoming blunt. And so there are there are there are a couple of ways. Um, you can check visually. You can look down the edge if if the light is good, and you can. Um, angle it towards um, a light source, normally the, the brightest part of the sky, even if the sun isn't apparent like today, it's very uh, grey and, and um, misty, but you, you've still got quite a lot of brightness there. Get out from under a tarp, get out from under the trees, have a look and get the light reflecting. And if it's a really, really sharp edge, it's got very, very little surface because it's, it's, it's fine. Whereas if, it, if it's flattened, it's gonna have a surface that is a, you know, a fraction of a millimeter wide. But if you angle it towards the light, that flattened surface will still reflect light. So you can look down your edge and you can see that it's either reflecting light along it or more likely because you've had it sharp in the first place and then you've used it, you'll have a, maybe a flat spot here or there where you've been using it heavily or you've bat on through something and it's flattened the edge a little bit and you can see the light reflecting off there more than anywhere else. So that will give you a visual indication as to whether or not it's going to need some work. The other thing you can do is, is gently run your thumb across the edge, not along the edge, across the edge and with the the print in your thumb you can feel it catching and the more dull and rounded the edge the less it's going to catch your your thumbprint so that's a way of doing it um, some people don't like doing that or some people don't like pe people like me telling other people that they get a bit nannyish about it yeah Treat people like adults. Most people are not going to push their thumb so hard onto a knife edge that they cut themselves. People are not stupid, okay? So it's perfectly fine to run your thumb gently across the edge to see how sharp it feels. Now, if you think about it, if you run, you know, if I, the tripod that this camera is on is not sharp, and if I run my finger across it, it's very rounded, it's not going to catch my thumb at all, whereas a sharp edge is going to, is going to catch. So you can, you, can, you can test it that way. And then the other thing that some people like to do, um, not if you like polishing your nails, of course, but uh, you know, if you don't, if that's not an issue for you, um, then you can run the edge, the sharp edge, across your thumbnail, for example. And the sharper it is, you're gonna get very fine shavings off the top of your thumb, where, thumbnail, whereas um, if it's blunt, you won't easily get a very fine uh, shaving off the top of your thumbnail. Um, I don't like doing that personally because I use my knife quite a lot and if I'm constantly testing my knife I'm going to run out of thumbnail. So, But yes, you can you can do that as a demonstration and then some people, like, when they've sharpened the knife, they kind of like to demonstrate how sharp it is by shaving the, 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 the hairs off their arms. But again, you know, that's, that's kind of more showmanship than a practical day-to-day -day thing. Me, personally, what I use is I'll get it out in the light, I'll look down the edge, I will see whether or not it's got any flat spots and then I will also feel with my thumb and if that if that um, if that feels blunt as well as looks like it's shining a bit of light I will I'll give it the appropriate amount of work. I have some articles on knife basic knife sharpening on a bench stone. Um, you can use an oil stone or you can use a water stone with a technique that is on um, in, in those articles and I will link to that article below this video um, wherever this video is um, embedded, YouTube or my blog, you can find a link to that um, 
to that article. And I'll also link to a knife safety article as well. That's always good, particularly if there are beginners watching this, it's good to have. People are getting their knife sh nice and sharp. They should also be using it safely um, you know, while they're using their knife, of course. So I'll put those two things there and you can refer to those. Um, but yeah, it, it's really a how long is a piece of string question. It's how long, how much are you using it and how heavily are you using it? Of course, there's steel quality issues and how, how well you sharpened it in the first place. But as a general rule, look down it and feel. And if it feels like it needs some work, do, some, do the appropriate amount of work and then it'll be um, good to go. The jacket I'm wearing in episode 27. Here's another good example of how to ask a quick question on Twitter. Um, I, I could have answered this question um, just by replying to that uh, tweet because I actually had to look up. I can't remember what jacket I wore on what date and what episode. I had to look at the episode to see what jacket I was wearing. But it reminded me that other people had asked me about that jacket as well. So I thought I might as well include this. Um, in Ask Paul Kirtley, and it was an Ask Paul Kirtley question with a hashtag as well, with my name spelt correctly, which is great. Um, it was the Helicontex um, Patriot jacket that I was wearing there. It's a heavy fleece jacket. Um, it is quite heavy, um, and I, I literally mean that I have a number of fleeces of, of um, from different manufacturers. I have some that I use more for sort of mountain walking that are really quite lightweight for the warmth. That one is really quite heavy it has a lot of pockets it has reinforcements it's got quite a lot of zips it's got hood um, I like it for working in the woods I like it on cold days it's too warm today um, even though I'm in early April and it's not super warm it's too warm for that jacket today um, I think I was wearing it the other week when I the last Aspore Curtly that I recorded um, if I remember rightly and it was starting to get a bit warm for it then, but it's good for cold mornings. And, it's, and it is kind of a jacket. It will go underneath my Norina Recon jacket. It fits very well with that. Um, but equally, I can wear it over a lighter fleece um, while I'm working around in the woods. And it, it, they're not that expensive in the grand scheme of things. And so, and they're robust. As I say, there's a lot of reinforcement patches on there and um, the, the fleece itself seems to be pretty hard wearing. And so I'm quite happy to be wearing it in the woods and be wearing it around fires and carrying logs and gathering, you know, firewood and carving materials, etc., etc., etc. It's not a delicate garment and therefore I like it quite a lot. And if you're sitting around, you know, and it's chilly of a night, you know, it's, it's quite thick fleece. Uh, you don't feel cold on your back and you can, you've got a hood and, and I like it quite a lot for that for that purposes. Do I use it for backpacking when weight is absolutely critical? No, because it's quite heavy for the warmth and it's also um, quite bulky for what it is. So um, I should probably do a more detailed review of it because I've been using it for a couple of years now. I saw somebody else um, using one. I asked them about it. They quite liked it um, and I, I got one and I've been using it for a few years now and I, you know, it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. I haven't broken it. I haven't torn it. I haven't put a hole in it. There's a couple of little burn marks on it from being around fires, but you know, it, it's absolutely fine. It's a good garment and I think it's very good value for money. So I should probably do a little bit more of an explanation about what I like about it on a video at some point, if I ever get around to doing that sort of video, which people keep asking me to do. Um, and the other one that I really should do quite soon is the Garberg 
review that I have been uh, threatening to do for a little while now that I've come to some good conclusions about that knife having used it for a good amount of time and I'll explain more of my thoughts on that video. So look out for a Mora Garberg, uh, the, the original one. I know they're just bringing out the carbon one now, but the uh, stainless one that I've been using for the best part of two years, um, definitely 18 months I've been using that knife. Um, I'll, I'll talk about that on a separate video. So, so keep an eye on my blog and keep an eye on my YouTube channel for that. Oiling knives. So it kind of goes with the other question. Um, this is from Nevin XXX. Ask Paul Kirtley hashtag via Twitter. And he asks, I was listening to the answer you gave about stropping rust, oh, stopping rust on knives. You said you make sure to oil, especially after you sharpen. You've talked in the past about using an oil stone. Wouldn't the oil you use in that process coat the newly exposed metal? Um, so short answer is yes, it does to a good extent. Um, if you've used an oil stone to sharpen um, a knife, you'll know that it gets covered in quite a dirty slurry of um, metal and grit from the stone mixed in with the oil. Um, that's useful for if you want to give the sides of the knife a little bit of a polish, but if you're going to check the edge, you're wiping that off with a bit of rag or kitchen towel or something, and then you're looking to see whether or not you're doing a good job of sharpening it. So you are actually removing a lot of the oil from the knife before you assess whether or not you've finished with it. And then of course, you're removing a, the, the most oil possible before you strop it if you're stropping the knife because you don't want to be introducing oil into your strop and therefore you will end up with a sharpened knife even if you've used an oil stone without a lot of oil on it so i always like to put a little bit of um something on the edge a lot of the time personally though i am not using an oil stone um either i use a water stone um, either a Japanese water stone, if it's at home, I use bench Japanese water stones, um, bench stone size. Um, I do have a combination Japanese water stone that's cut in half, so it's got a 1000 on one side, 6000 grit on the other side, that goes in a little um, plastic tub that I sometimes take on trips with me, particularly if I've got a number of cutting tools that I want to sharpen, um, but I don't want to be taking bench stones with me but equally, I don't want to be using a tiny little pocket stone. Um, so that's an intermediate option. And again, that's a water stone, not an oil stone. I do sometimes use a Gransfors axe stone to sharpen my knife as well as my axe. That might be a compact solution for taking on a journey. You don't want to be carrying loads of weight. You want to think about, okay, what, what can I use to sharpen all my tools? Particularly my PK1 um, knife, which has got a bit of a sort of saber grind on it it's got the slightly uh, convex grind on it i can sharpen that on the axe stone quite nicely again i use water with my axe stone i don't use oil and therefore i'm going to want particularly with a carbon steel um, blade i want to put some oil on that after i've exposed all that raw metal to the elements as it were um, i definitely want to just have a quick wipe of um uh, camellia oil or uh, at home or if I'm out in the field um, I'll use whatever I've got frankly um, some sort you know you could even put a little bit of olive oil on there or, or, or whatever if you've got you know a camp kitchen if you don't have any other oil with you um, 
for that purpose. The other thing that I do tend to use are those Ballistol wipes. Um, they go a long way um, to, you know, you can coat your axe heads, you can coat your um, knife, etc., etc. Um, or a little, or, or just decant a little bit of Ballistol into a little dropper bottle and carry that with your sharpening kit. That's also an option that you can use. So the other thing that I've always got with me if I've got a knife on me is the uh, the Falcon Even DC4 um, little diamond ceramic stone. And again, there's no oil involved in that. There's no mess. There's not even any water involved in that. So again, if I've been sharpening with that, I like to just put a little bit of oil on the edge. So for all of those reasons that's that's why i make that comment and i hope it's clear that under most circumstances personally i'm going to need to if i'm using a carbon steel edge i'm going to want to put some oil on the on the blade just to protect it and it doesn't have to be slathers of the stuff it's just a very thin film just to keep the thing um free from condensation as much as anything and um yeah hopefully that helps Bow drill, wood selection and moisture content. So this is from Johan and nice email address, by the way, uh, Johan. Um, Johan sent me a message via the contact form on my blog at paulcutley.co.uk. You can find contact there. There's a form, put your question in there, put ask Paul Kirtley in the subject line. That will come through to me and that will get filtered through to the Ask Paul Kirtley questions. So this question says, Hi, I attended your workshop on fire at Bushcraft Festivalen in Sweden. I wonder if there is a difference between using wood from the stem or a branch when making the parts of a bow drill set. And also, if it is hard to find the right dry wood, would it work as well to bring somewhat damp wood home to dry it indoors for later practice? If measured with electronics, what percentage should it be at least? Hope to see you again next year at Bushcraft Festival. And, um, well, I think that question's... When is that question from? So I don't have the date on that question. Sounds like you asked it at the end of last year, Johan, so apologies for the delay in answering your question. Um, as I say, I did have a backlog and I've pretty much cleared the backlog now. So that's, that'll be why that is from a few months ago. Um, still a very relevant question though, isn't it? Um, yes, I will be at Bushcraft Festival and again in 2018, um, I will be doing some tree and plant walks uh, there and Matthias uh, Norberg will be doing the fire workshop. So Matthias and I have swapped if you like um he did the plant walks last year i did the fire workshop he's doing the fire workshop this year and i'm doing the plant um plant walk so that'll be fun it'll be good to be there again it'd be good to see all of you um that were there in the past and it'd be good to meet some new people there as well it's a great event um so um are there any differences between the upright stem of a of a particular species of wood and the branch for Bodrill use, yes, there are. And it's, um, first off, it's the orientation. One is vertical and one is more horizontal. And the more horizontal it is, the more water, precipitation, rain, sleet, snow, is going to be incident on that piece of wood. And therefore, the more likely it is to be damp 
or, and water to have penetrated into that wood. So that's one thing, there will be a difference there. Doesn't mean to say that you can't always use branches for bow drill, but I would always be looking for vertical pieces initially, um, if I can, whether that's the main stem of, of, of a tree that has died off, or whether it is a side shoot. Some species that are good for bow drill tend to shoot lower down, or if they've been damaged or cut or a number of reasons there will be multiple shoots and not all of those always survive and you will end up with dead pieces that are quite vertical. I would always be preferring vertical pieces over horizontal pieces. That's just a, that's just a good rule. Doesn't mean to say that horizontal pieces won't work. But then the other thing about horizontal pieces as well is that they tend not to be as straight. Yeah, they tend to be a little bit more curved. They tend to, you know, whatever, you know, I'm being very general here and I'm picturing a few different species, but you know, some species like Scots pine, for example, you're gonna have a hard time finding um, nice straight pieces in the branches for, for spindles, for example. You're gonna have to do quite a lot of curve, uh, carving to remove curvature. Um, from branches just because of the way that it grows. Other species you will get longer straighter branches or sections of branches that might be more suitable but even so like I say if I can find a vertical piece I will I will go for it. Um, in terms of uh, moisture content um, yes you can take things home to practice although it is somewhat academic in the sense of you know the skill really with bow drill that is to be able to go into the woods, find the materials that you want there and then, and make a fire there and then, or at least be able to make an ember there and then. The other limiting factor, of course, is finding some dry tinder material so that you can put your ember into it and blow it to flame. Um, and that can often be the limiting factor in terms of time. You can normally, in a woodland, find the bow drill materials, but what might take you the time, both in terms of finding it and then making sure it's dry enough, is the fibrous plant material or, or whatever it is that you're using to make that, that bird's nest style bundle of fibers, bundle of material that you're gonna put the ember into and blow that to flame. So you may have to wait for that to be dried, however, you know, body drying or what have you, but that's starting to get beyond the scope of the question. But ultimately, that's the, that's the purpose of that technique, is that you can go into the forest and you can make fire. But yes, of course, there's validity in practicing the technique closer to home. Um, there is definitely, it's not so much about muscle conditioning, um, it's more about um, coordination. And practicing the coordination is definitely worthwhile ahead of you ever needing to use it for real or just wanting to use it you know there are there are two scenarios you can choose to go and use it or you might have to use it under certain circumstances um, but either way you don't want that to be a painful horrible experience where it's left to chance and you don't know whether or not the fire is going to light and it's going to take you hours if you need a fire you want to light a fire and so yes practice in your practice in your own time and if you want to take materials home, 
yes you can do that but bear in mind that once you've dried materials to a low moisture content it's probably going to be easier than it is using them out in the forest um, what you don't want to be doing is collecting green materials and taking them home and seasoning them because that's going to give you a very false sense of what those materials are like and they can also end up seasoning way too hard remember that fingernail test and if you don't understand the fingernail test I will link to my um, bow drill keys to success article which I wrote many years ago but is still as relevant now as it always was I will link to that below the video here and um, wherever you're watching it and if you're listening just go to paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash askpaulkirtley71 and you will find that link um, go through those bow drill keys to success because that's almost like a fault finding checklist and one of the things is if the material's too hard um, if you can't make a, an impression with your fingernail then um, you should discard it and find something that is um, more suitable because you won't get the wood to grind together into the hearthboard um, it will just polish and so um, sometimes you can take materials that are good for bow drill um, green season them at home in the shed or in the garage or wherever in the wood store but then they're too hard for bow drill you need them to have died and seasoned and be in the natural state that, that you find them after that process in the woods in terms of moisture content firewood you know things that are going to combust generally if you measure them with an electronic moisture uh, meter below 20 percent is typically what you want for your firewood and i would say it's the same for your bow drill materials if you want to use them at home and be excluding moisture as a reason why it's not working um, so if you're being scientific about it and saying right this material is dry enough for me to use i've excluded moisture i'm working on my technique i'm working on my coordination um, I'm working on understanding how this all works then yet yeah, I would aim for less than 20% or less in terms of moisture content but bear in mind it's going to be different in the woods so always go for that vertical material if you can and that brings us to the end of Aspore Kirtley 71 I hope you found that useful and I hope you're enjoying the spring if you are in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, I hope you're having a pleasant fall or autumn, whichever you call it. Um, I always like these times of year where you're getting change. Um, it's, it's fascinating to be out in the woods. It's fascinating to be out in the bush and seeing those changes on a daily basis, seeing how nature, seeing how the animals are reacting, seeing how the trees and the plants are reacting to the changing lengths of the day and what else is going on around them. So for me, it's always a vibrant, exciting time of year to be out here in you know, March, April, May in, in the northern temperate zone. Lots going on, lots changing from one week to the next. And... Um, it's fascinating so hopefully you get out soon you apply what you know if you've got questions about what you're up to you know where to ask um, send me a tweet post on Instagram using the hashtag AsporeKirtley contact form on my blog or speak pipe uh, voicemail uh, on my blog as well you can find that under AsporeKirtley and there's a list of the ways of asking there as well of course so 
I look forward to your questions. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to speaking to you on the next episode of Ask Paul Kirtley before too long. Take care.